everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Akai Johnson from Vera Institute for Justice. Welcome to our show. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us a little bit just in background, uh, what does Vera Institute do? So Vera is a criminal justice nonprofit. Uh, we work on uh, criminalization issues across the gambit. And probably the best way to explain what we do is really our origin story. So in 1961, there were two gentlemen in New York, Herb and Lou, who were really concerned about how bail practices were impacting poor communities in their city. And they realized that government stakeholders weren't really looking at data uh, to inform their policy decisions. So they uh, gathered a group of researchers who studied bail and its impact on communities and how it wasn't leading to safer communities. Uh, they presented their findings to government stakeholders and it led to some pretty significant bail reform changes in New York. And they thought, you know, someone should do this on a more regular basis. Uh, so they founded a nonprofit, named it after one of their mothers, Vera. Uh, and here we are today, um, some 60 years later, um, still doing the same work. So that's what Vera does. We harness data um, to help uh, stakeholders and people concerned across the criminal uh, justice landscape make better informed policy decisions. So you actually answered one, one question I've always had, which was where Vera came from. So now I know. Um, <laughs> So what, what is your background? How did you get to this place? So it's pretty happenstance. Um, so I, uh, among other things, uh, was a former prosecutor in the District of Columbia, which is where I still uh, call home. And I was a prosecutor mostly handling sex offense and domestic violence cases. And I always had a, an interest in how can we improve the system. I particularly saw how the system wasn't serving survivors in ways that I think the general public assumes that it does, but particularly for domestic violence, uh, we don't necessarily do a great job meeting the needs of survivors who even reach out to the system. So I was exploring a lot of ways to improve things. Um, for example, tried to organize a tour for everyone in our office uh, to go visit the DC jail so we could at least see the place where we were arguing to send people and have a better understanding of the consequences of our decisions. And amidst trying to do some of that local DC policy work, I had an opportunity to uh, have lunch with a woman named Jami Hodge, who was really kind of the founder, I would say, of our reshaping prosecution team at Vera in its current setting. Um, and we went out to lunch. I had never heard of Vera, thought it was an acronym, was not looking to leave becoming a prosecutor or being a prosecutor. And she told me what Vera did. I started spouting off my deluge of criminal justice reform ideas. 
And towards the middle of lunch, she just said, you know, I'm looking for someone to come help me build up this program focused on prosecutors. Are you interested? And that was really the first conversation that led to me uh, joining Vera. And now I'm the director of that program where we help prosecutors around the country better pursue safety in their communities. And for us, we have a firm belief that communities will actually be safer if fewer people enter the criminal legal system and we can instead uh, focus on preventative measures. Uh, so that's what we help prosecutors do. We help them explore research-based, evidence-based alternatives to limit who comes into the system and really building evidence that that's a better path to safety. And how long ago was this? I joined Vera about three and a half years ago. So my understanding is that Vera just uh, issued an RFP to elected prosecutors interested in making reforms. Can you kind of walk us through what that that's all about? Yeah, so our RFP or request for proposal is an opportunity for offices to apply to work with us to receive assistance implementing reforms that are designed to improve safety in their communities. So as part of the RFP, um, the offices are, are required to name what reform they would like us to come help them implement. And for us, that has to be something that limits who's entering the system. So it could be a declination policy or, or um, prosecutors deciding, you know what, this type of conduct has no place in the criminal um, legal system, it should go somewhere else or like a diversion policy. So yeah, there's something that's been done. Uh, there should be a response, uh, but let's find a response that is gonna improve safety in our community as opposed to more traditional uh, responses uh, where appropriate. Uh, and then we come in and offer our technical assistance support to help them do the thing. Uh, so we'll come in, um, like interview people in their office to get a sense of what's worked in the past, what hasn't worked in terms of implementing policies, uh, we have quantitative researchers who analyze data in their office. The uh, best way I can describe it is everyone probably has that drawer in their house where uh, there's a ton of stuff in there, but unless you're intimately familiar with that drawer, you're probably not going to be able to find the thing um, that would be useful. That's the state of data in most prosecutor offices around the country. And so we come help them clean that up. So we can say intelligible and helpful things like, how many misdemeanor cases do we have per year? What percentage of those are drug possession cases? How long does it take for us to charge those cases? How long do those people stay in jail? What are the racial disparities in those cases? Where do those cases come from? All of those types of questions, we can help analyze data so they can answer those questions and use them to inform future policy changes. And then we also have a, a very exciting uh, qualitative aspect. Um, it's called participatory action research. Uh, so folks can, I guess, Google that. I won't pretend to get into the weeds of technicalities of it. But in essence, it's designed to help community members have a better say and understanding of how the prosecutor impacts safety in their community. So what we'll do is we'll come identify community members who have been impacted by the system. We'll train them in how to conduct qualitative research, teach them about what prosecutors do, and then help guide them as they conduct research in the community where we're working. Um, so if we're um, I'll use Portland, Oregon, which is where I'm originally from as an example. We would train community researchers who live in Portland. They would go out and do surveys, focus groups, and interviews with people in their community who are impacted by the system. And from that, we would learn how do they define safety? What do they think the DA do, can do to contribute to safety? And uh, we will use that information to further guide policy changes in their office. And then all of this culminates uh, with us having implemented a policy 
using data to track its effectiveness, getting this community input, and hopefully fostering better bonds between the DA and their communities so they can really work together and pursuing safer alternatives. And probably the best part about this for people who apply to work with us is it all is free uh, of cost. So we don't charge any of the jurisdictions for these services. And indeed, we actually pay the community researchers that we hire and train. So have you ever done something like this before? Yes, yeah, so um, we've uh, tried a number of different versions of what I just described. Um, and so we just wrapped up partnerships in seven different jurisdictions that did some version of what I just described. So um, Boulder, Colorado, Contra Costa, California, um, DeKalb County, Georgia, uh, Suffolk County, Massachusetts, Ramsey County, Minnesota, Ingham County, Michigan, which is like Lansing, Michigan area, and then Kansas City, Kansas or Wyandotte County. Um, and Wyandotte is where we piloted this model where we trained community researchers and it was amazing. Um, so we had eight community researchers there. Uh, four of them were high school students, uh, which was great. Um, and we had a very trained seasoned expert in research on our team who met with them regularly, trained them in how to conduct research. And they ended up doing uh, several focus groups, um, a number of individual interviews and surveyed over a hundred people in the county to get information about what they wanted uh, to see and how they defined safety. And one of the key things that came up in that interview um, was related to like police stops. Um, and one of the stories we heard, and I think this is really a powerful element of this qualitative research is hearing directly from people, how the system impacts their lives. Uh, there was a story of a woman, a black woman in Kansas City, uh, married to a white man who uh, they got pulled over for some like, very low level traffic reason not related to safety. And the officer started questioning them and it became apparent during questioning that the officer believed that she was a prostitute because she was with this white man in Kansas City. And so hearing the impacts um, of the system, I mean, sure, we could present a bunch of data about traffic stops for low level non-public safety reasons. But I think hearing those stories is really the power in this so people can understand how some of these practices can really undermine community trust and safety and why it's so important to try to do something about it. So it sounds like from the list of seven that you gave, a lot of these are, um, you know, what we would call progressive prosecutors that are looking to further their programs. Yeah, I would say so. And even um, I find myself not using the term progressive even as much because there are some Republican folks who are doing a lot of great criminal justice reform work. Um, I would shout out Yolo County um, in California. They've done a lot of amazing things in terms of diversion, using data, being transparent. And so, uh, but yes, we do work um, exclusively with reform oriented prosecutors. So we will only come to a jurisdiction if the DA has um, outwardly expressed or has um, demonstrated a commitment to wanting to find ways to limit who comes into the criminal legal system as a better path to safety. So I guess I should mention, I live in Yolo County. Um, I'm not sure I agree with your characterization of the DA, but that's okay. <laughs> well, even if I could say on that, uh, there are, I think maybe 2,300 offices or prosecutors in the country. There are not that, so even speaking of data, their data, transparency portal, I probably could think of less than 10 that maybe have something like that. Um, and so I think, and even that he, um, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in, in all things YOLO, um, but even from my interactions with him, like he's exploring a second chance sentencing initiative with For the People. 
unfortunately, there just aren't that many prosecutors who would even entertain something like that. Um, and so th those are the kind of prosecutors we're looking for, folks who are interested in some kind of reform, because unfortunately, there are so many who will paint a picture that any limiting who comes into the criminal legal system, the sky will fall, communities will be um, extremely dangerous, and that we just know not to be the case. And particularly speaking as someone who's a former sex offense and domestic violence prosecutor, I can tell you from personal experience that that, that, that is just not true. Yeah, and I think that that's a good point that, you know, there aren't enough DA's offices looking into programs. Um, so the other thing I understand is that um, Vera is changing its direction and starting to think about uh, public safety as a community health. Can you kind of explain that concept? Yeah, so I think um, at least I'll speak from our team's work, Reshaping Prosecution more particularly. We have always like implicitly focused on safety. And so when we talk about like addressing mass incarceration, addressing racial disparities. For us, we have a really solid understanding of how that equates to safety. But what we realized, um, particularly with a lot of the tough on crime narratives, is for the general public, that may not be true. People may believe that they have to pick between reform and racial justice and safety. And that's what we're really trying to show is not the case, that actually they're all one and the same. Uh, for example, I'll use DC where I live. Um, DC is less than 50% Black, but over 90% of the people that are prosecuted here are Black, over 93% of the people in the jail are Black, and over 90, I think 6% of people sent to prison from DC are Black. And so the question is, why? Why is that true? And it's not because Black people are somehow genetically predisposed to commit crime, um, but there also are realities that Black people in DC do commit more of a certain type of crime uh, than other folks in DC. I'll use homicides as an example. Um, I think at least the most recent year of data I saw, I think 97 or 98% of homicide suspects were black and 96 or 97% of homicide victims were black. But again, the question is why? And when you start asking that question, you can certainly, in DC as an example, um, there's this very wealthy neighborhood in DC where some of the best public schools in the city are. But if you go back to the 1920s, you'll find that it used to be a black neighborhood, a thriving black neighborhood with a lot of like businesses, barbershops, banks. And there was surrounded by a white community that wasn't pleased with this black neighborhood and wanted them gone. And so the government um, used eminent domain power to take over that land, bulldoze the community and displace all those residents to a different area. And now those same residents who have been displaced don't have the same access to this amazing um, like set of public schools in that area. And so you start to see how government choices and practices have led to some of the conditions we see today. And when you ask people, what are the solutions? They'll say things like greater investment in educational opportunities, job opportunities, housing, um, access to quality food and mental health services. Well, surprise, surprise, the same kind of answers to address the racial disparities I just talked about in DC are the same things that people will say are that we need to have safer communities. And so for us, um, addressing racial disparities and safety are really one and the same because in so many jurisdictions across the country, the people who are both victimized the most, incarcerated the most, and the criminal legal system are black and brown people. And it's due to some of these historic uh, discrimination policies that I just mentioned in DC. 
And so to your question about this shift to community safety, for us, it's really being explicit about how the things we're talking about will improve community safety, including this element of racial equity. So people understand that um, in order to truly have safety for everyone, we have to talk about who's impacted by these decisions the most and really start centering solutions in those areas. So I, I think you raise a good point. So I know the data, for instance, in Yolo County, um, you know, they just released some of the racial data where um, Yolo County is about uh, 3% of the population is black. And yet, if you go into the jails, it's about 28% on any given day. And like huge disparities um, in terms of the number of people sent to prison from Yolo County. How do, how do we get at at that. And, you know, uh, often what I hear from people is, well, the problem is that, you know, it, it, that's just a reflection of the percentage of people that are actually committing the crimes. And so it's, it's not about prosecution. And yet we kind of know that, that there, there is an element to that, but there's also an element not to that, that we know that a lot of the, uh, you know, not just the prosecutors, but but the policing, uh, you know, focuses on areas that are heavily black and brown areas uh, in the community, and so what they're choosing to uh, to do is, is kind of perpetuating the system as well. How do you respond to a lot of that? So, um, man, easy easy answer. Um, yeah. So, so uh, the first thing I'll say is like, as much as people. Um, bristle, it's a complex answer. And I think the unfortunate thing is too many people try to paint it with a broad stroke uh, and make it seem like, oh, I've got the ready-made solution, whether it's like um, something that people would view as more left, something people would view as more right. Um, but I think that's not being genuine with the public. And I think people are smart enough to track when you give a nuanced answer and so that's what I'm gonna I'm gonna attempt to do and would ask the listeners to, to bear with me but I think it's it's multifaceted um, so certainly some of that disparity is policing choices historical and what we choose to focus on most classic example and as a former prosecutor certainly saw this a lot it's much easier to arrest the person selling drugs on the corner because that's readily available and easy to see. It's much harder to conduct a long-standing investigation of a doctor, let's say, who's overprescribing opioid medication or of the person who's selling drugs out of their dorm room on a private college campus. Like that's very much, that's harder to see. Um, and it's much easier to arrest the person you can just see on the street. And there are certainly historic um, reasons in our country why the people you tend to see on the street are people of color while the other folks may not be. And so certainly policing priorities is part of it. Um, some of it is societal conditions. Um, so I use DC as an example. Um, I'm not as familiar with the statistics in Yolo County, but I would bet that they're probably pretty similar. Like the median um, household income for black people in DC is significantly lower than other people in DC. And there are like historic reasons that play a huge role into that. But if you're in communities where um, they're under-resourced, um, the schools aren't as great as other communities, you don't have the same job opportunities or even mentorship opportunities. Like you don't see people around you who have chosen other career paths 
those conditions tend to lead to crime. I mean, there's a, a great body of research that the biggest drivers of violence are shame, isolation, and inability to meet your economic needs and exposure to violence. And all of those things tend to show up in, more, in some communities more than others. Again, due to a lot of these historic um, policy decisions that have been made in our country. And then there's the final piece, which I um, think also doesn't tend to come up a lot, maybe in one side of the argument, is the reality that some people are making bad decisions. Um, but I think you can't ignore the circumstances under which those decisions are made if you're going to try to address the overall issue. I would say those three things certainly come top of mind to me to help explain some of the disparities. Um, and that's a huge um, obstacle. Like these uh, problems have been going on in our country since its inception. Um, and so it's, I think, um, disingenuous to think that one person is going to snap their fingers and all of a sudden everything's going to be okay. But just because everyone can't do everything, everyone can do something. And so I think when it comes to prosecutors who we work with, we help them reflect on what is your role in this? Um, to use a simple analogy, um, you may have been given this really beat down and busted car, but now you're driving it. And so what can you do to try to change it, to try to produce different outcomes? And you're going to need cooperation from other people on a lot of things, but there are some things within your kind of scope of control that you can try to address. And that's what we try to help them do. I think that's as good an answer as any. I, you know, it, it, it's it's very complicated. And I, I always fear when people try to oversimplify things, they're missing a lot of the nuance. And some of the parts of, you know, crime data are, are just looking at, you know, who, what age group you know, are committing crimes. And so if you have a group of people that end up uh, having a disproportionate number of young people that are in that uh, crime committing group, of course, you're going to get more. Poverty is linked uh, to the commission of crime. And so if you have a group of people that are overrepresented in the poverty stats, um, you know, and so, you know, once you start looking at that, then, then you start realizing that, you know, the, the narrative uh, that that's uh, dominant isn't necessarily the accurate one. No, 100%. Um, and there's actually a, like a, a hypothetical that I, um, that I like that I think helps to illustrate that. So if, if you're listening to the podcast and you're not driving or doing something dangerous, I would ask you to close your eyes and bear with me for a second. But um, if, as your eyes are closed, imagine the person you care about the most, whoever that is, a spouse, best friend, um, child, uh, parent, imagine that person in your head. Now imagine them walking down this very dark alley. There's no one else in the alley except this other person approaching from the opposite side. And let me tell you about that person. Three years ago, that person was convicted of a robbery and they were faced um, with a choice. Uh, they could either have been sent down this traditional path or a different kind of alternative path. And that decision really laid in the hands of people operating within the criminal legal system. So under the traditional path, that person would have been sent to prison for a few years. They would have been surrounded by people who had committed similar crimes. Uh, they likely would not have had access to education or job opportunities, and they would have been exposed to violence on a near daily basis. Then they get out, um, they have a felony conviction, uh, so it's harder for them to secure housing, harder for them to get a loan. And in many places you cannot apply for a loan if you have a felony conviction and cannot access public housing or housing assistance if you have a felony conviction. 
And then they tried to rely on their family, uh, but their family was ashamed of them, had lost touch during their stretch of incarceration and really didn't want them around. And now that person is walking towards your loved one in the alley. Now let's talk about the other path. The other path is an alternative, maybe an approach like restorative justice, uh, which is a process where the survivor is more centered and gets to dictate the terms of what accountability looks like. And so in that scenario, the person that they robbed had a chance to meet with them face to face if they wanted to and dictate what they wanted that person to do to make it right, um, to show that they had turned their life around and repair the harm that they had caused that person. And the victim in that case decided they wanted the person to figure out um, why they made this horrible decision and turn their life around. And in that process, the person got connected with a mentor. Someone helped them with job skills training. And they realized that they actually had a passion for cooking. And so in the past uh, couple years, they've been going to cooking school. And now when they approach your loved one in the alley, they're on their way to their first shift as a sous chef. And so the question is, who do you want your loved one to approach in that alley? Um, and that's really the work that we're trying to do and the narrative we're trying to uplift. Now, look, that doesn't work for everyone, but I think people working within the system have an obligation to explore alternatives when we know the traditional path is going to set us up um, for more detrimental outcomes in the future. So out here, you know, in California, we recently had Chesa Bodine, who was uh, recalled. Um, we have George Gascon down in L.A. Um, we're waiting to see if there's going to be a recall election down there. Uh, we know closer to where you are, um, Larry Krasger is facing a possible impeachment. Uh, also closer to you, um, probably a little less attention on uh, Parisa Degani. Uh, in, in Virginia, who's faced various obstacles. I mean, um, what do you see as kind of uh, the future of reform-minded DAs? Um, you know, is there a pushback against them? Is this a blip? Is it just kind of a COVID moment? How do you view this stuff? I would say there's maybe Chessa and everybody else. Um, so I'll start with him first. Uh, I think the investment in his recall campaign was truly unprecedented. I think last I saw was maybe over $7 million invested in that, which is truly unheard of. Um, and I think there were some unique um, issues there. For example, the recall in San Francisco was not um, Chester Boudin or this other named candidate where you could scrutinize and evaluate their policies. It was literally just, do you have a favorable opinion of this person or not? And a lot of politicians, I think, would struggle to retain office if it was truly just, do you like this person or do you think some hypothetical person could do a better job? So I think there were some unique issues um, facing D. Boudin's election. Uh, in terms of the broader scope, I guess we'll see. Um, I, I think the pushback um, that some of these DAs are seeing is obviously real. People are coordinating these efforts. But I, I think in using Larry Krasner as an example, when you actually put it to the people for a vote in the traditional process where there are other candidates, they're winning. Um, and I think in DA Krasner's case in particular, the areas of the city that had experienced or traditionally experienced like the most gun violence, I think voted for him overwhelmingly. And so I think it's telling that the people who are experiencing these issues most closely, who are arguably the experts and what they think will help turn things around are still choosing a reform approach over the traditional approach. And I think it's because those people um, on the whole see exactly the that robbery hypothetical we just walked people through. They know that this traditional approach isn't working and that when a 
someone comes out and just says tough on crime, lock them up more. They're not giving that nuanced, genuine answer and they're not trusting the public to really paint the whole picture. And even as a former domestic violence and sex offense prosecutor, I can't tell you how many times survivors would be in my office or I'd be sitting with them in their living room and they would just say, I don't wanna go forward with this traditional approach. And I think a lot of people view them as, oh, they're the uncooperative victim, you know, shame on them almost. But I would push back on that. And I would say, we know for certain that all of those survivors, all of those victims want to feel safe. And if they're not choosing to engage with the current system, that says more about what we're offering than it says about who they are. So that's why I think it's incumbent on prosecutors and all folks and the criminal justice field to explore these alternatives because the reality is I think 50% of victims of violent crime never even reach out to the police. And of those 50%, I think half of those will even choose to engage with the process, let alone who actually sees it all the way through. So I think it's a pretty stinging indictment of our current approach. Um, and it's something Danielle Surrett, uh, folks are interested, who's an amazing scholar and runs an amazing program on restorative justice and has written a great book called Until We Reckon. Um, should check out. But all of that is in a nutshell to say, um, I think the pushback is real. Um, but I think in the long term, we're seeing people continue to choose this alternative because they know the current approach isn't making them as safe as tough on crime advocates um, and proponents would like people to believe. Uh, I'm going to circle back to this point because I think it's really good, but I don't want to kind of um, lose uh, another important point that you had made. Um, which is a point that I, I kept making to people in San Francisco, is that it wasn't, you know, necessarily a fair test, uh, you know, to, uh, to have Chase Boudin having to run against some hypothetical perfect person that has no record. And so it's going to be really interesting to see what happens now in San Francisco. So they just appointed a new DA uh, a, a few weeks ago. And uh, she's already, you know, making waves. Um, you know, she fired a whole bunch of people that were reformers in her office. Um, she's putting a big focus on uh, drug, um, you know, enforcement, um, kind of hearkening back to the bad old days of uh, the war on drugs. And, and so now the question's gonna be, because she has to face an election in, in November, it, is Bodine gonna come back and uh, run or will somebody else come back? You know, the people I've talked to in San Francisco think it's kind of 50-50 on, uh, on Bodine coming back, but somebody else could come back in and uh, run on a reform thing. And then, uh, you know, Brooke Jenkins is gonna have to run on her, her policies, which is gonna be a big difference from, you know, the hypothetical. So I think you were spot on in that analysis. Yeah, and I think it speaks to kind of the democratic process overall. I, I know one of the things you mentioned earlier was the pushback. Um, and, you know, Larry Krasner, for example, I think in Pennsylvania, they passed a law that um, the attorney general can take gun cases away from Larry Krasner. Um, and then I think there's similar legislation to allow in other places to allow someone to like take cases from the local prosecutor. But I think to your point, that undermines kind of the local democratic process. Like, we have candidates for a reason. We let them come out with their policy platforms to the public and then let the public 
decide and what people decide for their community should be respected. Um, and I think when you had a situation like the recall in San Francisco, it perverts that process a little bit because you don't have that opportunity to weigh another policy or another candidate and really see the distinction. Um, and I think we're seeing that in the same way with some of this discretion bills where they tried to pull cases away from a duly elected local prosecutor whose community has been very clear, no, we had options, we weighed them, and this is the person that we picked, and we'd like to see them carry their vision through. Now, to the other point you raised, which I think is also really important, um, you know, there is this perception in the system that the only way to protect society is to lock somebody in a cage for uh, a, a specified period of time. And we know that doesn't work very well. Uh, we know it doesn't work very well because, um, you know, we, we know there's a high rate of people that are never caught committing a crime, in, in which case there's never any accountability. We know it doesn't work well because there's an extraordinarily high rate of recidivism. So, you know, somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of the people that are released uh, from prison uh, commit a new crime within a specified period of time. Uh, we also know that uh, you know the vast majority of people are not going to serve a life sentence. So every almost everybody, ninety-five percent, I think, is the number of people that are uh, incarcerated are released at some point, and yet um, you know we make it impossible for them to succeed. Um, you know, we don't give them job skills. Uh, we make it hard for them to get jobs because uh, they have to fill in the bubble that says that they were a felon. Uh, you know, we make it hard for them to find stable living because we preclude them uh, from uh, getting government subsidized housing. Uh, we, we preclude them from feeding their families because uh, we make them ineligible for things like food stamps, uh, and I could go on all day on this, right? Um, if, if we wanted to create a system that um, made it uh, impossible for somebody to get back on their feet, we couldn't do a lot better uh, if we intentionally tried, in my opinion. So many people don't seem to get that, you know, the system that we have, the lock them up mentality, doesn't actually protect us as well as they think it does. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I think some of that is narrative and what people have been told for so long. Um, and it's not helped by, um, I don't mean to call them out in particular, but shows like Law and Order, for example, where they paint a less nuanced vision of how crime actually works. I think there's this vision that there are good guys and bad guys, and they're very distinct lines, and they never overlap. But if you're someone who spent any time uh, with any proximity uh, to a local criminal legal system, you know that that's just not true. Um, I can't tell you how many times there would be someone I prosecuted who was later the victim of a crime or vice versa. Or maybe there was an incident where someone had committed a crime but also been victimized within a very short period of time. And a lot of this stems from the causes you mentioned earlier. And let me be clear, that's not to say that people should not be accountable for the decisions that they make. They absolutely should be. But if we're serious about having true safety, we have to be willing to dig into the nuance and really think through what's best to make us all safer. Um, but I think that is a hard thing to sell to people because for so long they've been told 
we just need to lock up more people and everything will be okay. But I can assure you that if that were true, we would be the safest country on the planet because we lock up more people than anywhere on the planet. And, you know, we, incarceration is a hammer. It is a tool, but you can't build a house with a hammer. Um, and that's what we're trying to do. And then we're frustrated when it doesn't work. So again, I, that's why I think it is absolutely imperative that people are willing to explore alternatives because the evidence couldn't be clearer. This isn't working. Um, we need to try something different. And what also I always find fascinating is, I don't know if it's government or if it's public safety in general, but this approach would not fly in any other industry. Like if this was aviation and we said, you know, the same thing we've been doing since the early 1900s, we're just going to keep doing it and we're resistant to trying something different, people would lose it. Like there's no way someone would say, yeah, let me get on a plane that was built in 1915 today versus one that was built in 2022. Um, and same thing for medicine. There have been so many advancements in the field of medicine, but with criminal justice, we've really just said, same thing, tough on crime, lock them up, incarceration, conviction. And there's been so much resistance to change uh, when the reality is change is going to be necessary for us to really pursue safety in the way that we all want. I'll raise uh, this point as well, which is uh, a point that you made. I don't think there's enough talk about um, what I have been starting to call the victim to prison pipeline, uh, where um, you know if, if you look at the prison system. And I know this is particularly evident with women, but I think it's also evident with men, is that you know you go from being victimized by crime, either when you're young, abused, uh, you know, beaten, molested, something like that, um, to becoming a perpetrator of crime later in your life because you just haven't resolved this trauma. Um, and, and so, you know, it seems like if we could create a better system which took care of the victims earlier, we could head off some of this. 100%. Um, and, and it speaks to kind of the multifaceted and nuanced approach that is necessary for crime. And probably the most tragic example is for a lot of victim uh, like rights funds, or in other words, if you're a victim of a crime, most government um, governments provide funding to you um, to kind of help repair harm or um, repair damage that's been done. But usually you can only access that if you're willing to cooperate in a criminal investigation. And so what if you're a victim who has seen how the criminal system has not provided safety for you in the past, um, and so you decide not to get help? Well, now all of a sudden we've missed an opportunity to potentially provide counseling, therapy to someone who's been a victim and has decided for their own safety needs that they don't want to engage in the process. Um, so it is this catch-22. We kind of require people to go along with the process, even when they may not believe it's the best thing for their safety. And then we're not doing enough on a preventative end um, to help address some of the reasons that might prevent further crime in the future. And then another um, example that comes to mind is prior to the pandemic, I used to teach a class at the DC jail um, here. Um, it was all young men. And one day they asked me, you know, Mr. Johnson, why is it that our city spends more to lock us up than it could have spent to educate us? And that's a real question. I mean, incarcerating people is expensive. And we frequently hear people talk about, well, we just don't have the funding to invest more in education. We do, we've just made different policy choices. Um, and so to your point, we could be spending much more on the front end 
uh, like providing every kid with a laptop, um, increasing pay for teachers, providing more services at school, providing more access to food in neighborhoods so kids don't go to school hungry. And there's been an unwillingness, I think, to do that in a lot of places. But then there is a willingness and almost a blank check to incarcerate as many people as possible. And it's just not an effective way of approaching safety. Yeah. Um, and, and that's another, you know, really important point. We, we spend more money per year to incarcerate someone than you spend in a year to get a Harvard education. No, 100 percent. And I wish I knew the stats for California, but I'm sure they're bad. But at least in D.C., I think the average cost to incarcerate someone in the jail here is roughly like $34,000 a year, maybe $35,000 a year. I mean, you could send um, <laughs> you could send kids to some of the best schools in the country for that, uh, particularly in, in high California, school. In California, it's even worse. It's like fifty to sixty for jail and over a hundred thousand for prison. Yeah, and I think that's hopefully what more and more people will understand is not only is the system doing things as you mentioned to make it harder for people to get back on their feet and harder to provide safety in the way we want. It's also expensive, um, and so again, kind of looping back comparing us to other industries, no one would stand for some kind of airplane that was really expensive to build, was crashing all the time, wasn't making us safer. Of course not. But um, in public safety systems, um, just get a pass on those kind of analyses. Imagine if you had an airplane that that crashed 70% of the time. Right. And was, re and was more expensive than some of the state-of-the-art airplanes. Exactly. All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and having this great and needed conversation. Thank you so much. This was great. I was really glad to get a chance to speak with you. Akai Johnson from the Vera Institute for Justice. And what is um, the Vera's website for people that want to find out more about the great work you guys are doing? Sure. So the entire institute, and I should have been clear earlier, our institute works on a wide range of issues. Um, so Vera.org is where you can find the entire institute. And then Vera Reshaping Prosecution. If you Google that, um, you'll come to our specific page where we do work with prosecutors. Great. Well, thanks so much for being on. This has been Everyday Injustice. We've been talking about reform prosecutors and reforming the criminal legal system. I'm David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system.